The world is full of great debates, like Coca-Cola or Pepsi, Android or Apple, and which was better, the book or the film. At a recent Mid-Year Investment Outlook Forum in London, portfolio managers and strategists held some great debates of their own. Is the next downturn on the horizon, or do we believe this business cycle still has room to run? And what will drive markets over the remainder of 2019? Policymakers and central banks? Hard to predict but enduring geopolitical dynamics? Or something else entirely that we're not paying enough attention to? On this episode of The Bid, we'll talk about where these debates netted out. Each summer, we release our mid-year investment outlook, which talks about the themes we see shaping markets for the rest of the year. In preparation, we sat in on our mid-year forum to hear how our strategists are thinking about today's markets. We'll walk through our views on the remainder of 2019 through conversations with members of the BlackRock Investment Institute, like Jean Bovin, head of BII, Elga Barch, its head of macro research, and Tom Donnell and its chairman, as well as investors like Rick Reeder, BlackRock's chief investment officer for global fixed income. I'm your host, Jack Aldrich. We hope you enjoy. Over the course of two days, about 100 of our portfolio managers and strategists came together to hash out our mid-year outlook for markets. One critical theme that came up throughout, the prospects for regime change, or a paradigm shift in how markets, the economy, and policy work. Our view? We are late in the business cycle, and global growth is slowing. We think this cycle is set to play out over a longer time frame, and economic overheating or a recession are not immediate market risks. But the backdrop is a fragile one and vulnerable to potential regime change. Rupert Harrison, a portfolio manager in multi-asset strategies, spoke with BII's Elga Barch to discuss what's on the line. What do you mean when you talk about regime change? Yeah, so regime change can mean one of two things. One is a regular regime switch. That would be, let's say, from a low volatility to a high volatility regime. So it basically allows you to go back and forth between two states of the world, and you can go back to how things were. But there is also the possibility of a more radical regime change, which basically changes more fundamentally the underlying system, the characteristics of it, and means that you're most likely not going back to how things were. I mean, we've seen that really exacerbated with the shift at the end of last year. We had a big sell-off in markets. We had to make a big judgment about was that turning into a recessionary regime. We took the view that no, the global economy was still in a decent place, and we've seen a big rebound since then. I'd say... I guess what's a little bit more difficult is thinking about when can you tell the difference between a regular regime change and a radical regime change. So thinking about some of the different challenges we're facing from US trade policy, for example. Mm -hmm. Are there any signposts for you that would help us to distinguish what's a regular regime change and whether we're seeing the beginning of something more radical? I think the minute you're starting to see developments that look very much like an escalation that could be described as non-linear and where you really feel that tectonic plates are shifting. And I do think that what we are at the moment seeing in trade policy could be that because it could mean that a lot of working assumptions on the global economy, you know, deeper integration, mm. leveraging scale, seamless technology, just-in-time management, and all the benefits of globalization could potentially be on the line now. As Rupert and Nelga mentioned, we're facing new and different challenges today. 
In our view, trade disputes and broader geopolitical frictions are now the key drivers for the global economy and markets, rather than late-cycle recession risks. These geopolitical tensions may pivot us from an era of globalization to deglobalization, where countries take a more nationalist rather than cooperative stance in the global arena. But it's more than that. According to Tom Donilon, BII's chairman and former U.S. national security advisor, we're moving to a different stage in the world order, and the U.S. is the main driver of geopolitical and economic uncertainty. BlackRock's vice chairman, Philip Hildebrand, sat down with Tom to get his perspective on what might be changing from here on out. From your perspective, what is unique about this juncture, both in terms of the economy, but also how politics interacts and plays into the economic outlook? Yeah, I think a couple of things are unique. Number one, we do have an unusually large number of volatile and unstable situations in the world. Now, they won't all go to worst case scenarios, but there's a large number of them that have to be considered by markets. Second, I think we're in a different phase in terms of the world order. The post-Cold War period has ended, and we're in a new phase at this point where you have a number of players, including obviously China as a big player right now. Third, I think the relationship between economics, technology, and geopolitics is quite unusual. We see that in the competition that's developed between the United States and China over technology issues, which are really driving a lot of what's going on between the two countries in terms of their interaction. And of course, we have a trade situation right now, which is one of the principal threats to the economic order. When we heard initially at the inauguration, the president articulate the America First strategy, couldn't quite figure out what it meant today. When I look at it from Europe or from Asia, when I travel When you look at it from outside the United States, it looks more and more like what this really means is the U.S. is exporting fragmentation, volatility. These are all things that are very new. I mean, if we think of the post-war order, the hegemon, so to speak, Mm -hmm. has always been there as a stabilizer, as a guarantor to some extent of the rules, of course, with some enlightened self-interest in mind. Is this really a completely new game that we're entering here? It's a very different approach. I think what we're seeing right now is the implementation phase of the America First policy that's been put forth by President Trump. And it is a departure in a lot of ways as to the way the United States has conducted itself with respect to alliances and trade, most directly international agreements, international institutions. It's most clear in the trade area, where today the United States, I think it's fair to say analytically, as a matter of fact, is in trade disputes with most of its major partners around the world simultaneously. And it's using a number of tools right now to press its case that are unusual, especially tariffs and a number of steps that have been taken that are typically reserved for adversaries, right? During the Cold War, President Trump has undertaken to use these tools to impress the case, the economic case for the United States in an unusual, in some places, in an unprecedented way. So yes, I think we're seeing something different. I think we're seeing the implementation of America First policy. I think it is different than the way the United States has approached a number of key issues over the last 75 years, and it's been disruptive. There's no doubt about it. And of course, the key question will be, how does this impact market pricing? I think we have to assume that there is some sort of risk premium across all this. Investors are focused on the re-election campaign that's about to get going in earnest in a couple of weeks' time. There is a Federal Reserve that's back in play with potential interest rate cuts. So we have essentially kind of countervailing forces that are going to make it very challenging to have a clear sense of how we should think about the A lot of different vectors, I think. A lot of different vectors. We do have an election coming up in the United States. And I think that the right analytical tool, when you look at Washington right now, if you're trying to 
determine which way one of the parties is going to go is through the 2020 electoral lens. I think that's what's going on in the United States. And we've already had the elections really kind of kick off in the United States with debates. Second, we do have again, an aggressive trade policy, which has to be considered by markets. And we've seen that the president is engaged in, yes, China. And I think the markets thought that would be the principal focus. But he's also engaged in a number of other places and was willing to use the tariff tool with respect to Mexico in a non-tariff, non-trade arena in order to pursue a policy or political goal. That's unusual for a president of the United States. And I think that's going to continue. I think that essentially what's happened is that President Trump's approach to foreign policy has come into sharp relief. I think we now have a sense of his style, his approach, his goals. And I think we're going to continue to see that for the remainder of his term, whether that's through 2020 or thereafter. I think this is the Trump approach to foreign policy and economic policy. The big risk, of course, is that this could undermine the fabric of the global economy and really damage growth potential in the long term, while potentially having inflationary effects in terms of higher prices as a result of it. So this would be a very unpleasant combination, basically, lower potential growth and higher inflation as a result of this fundamental questioning of the economic order. Do you see a risk here of tearing at the fabrics of the global economy that could lead to lower potential growth and higher inflation over time? I do see the risk. There's a risk that in achieving short-term narrow goals, if you will, by the United States in the trade area, for example, that you could be, through the approach, risking the health of the overall system going forward. The United States at this point is not a strong supporter of the WTO system or the international free trading system generally. It's seeking in many ways to upend that system and to interact in a transactional way with allies and friends around the world. So the risk is, yes, achieving some short-term goals. So the United States steps back from leading that system. What happens? The system does start to fray. Bad behaviors emerge throughout the system. But most importantly, I think when there's a crisis, if you don't have a leader in the international system, for example, as we did in uh, yeah, 2009. That's something we right. learned. I saw, you know, firsthand what happens in the crisis, how important that U.S. Yeah. leadership was yeah. at yeah. the right moment. And so that's the question. If you don't have that leadership, if you haven't built up these habits of cooperation, if you haven't really kind of worked on the same values and outlooks, in a crisis, you can have grave difficulty. It was really important, for example, in 2009, that the United States was in a leadership position and working in a cooperative way with the world to address the crisis. It really made all the difference at the end of the day. As Philip and Tom discussed, we believe geopolitical conflicts have the potential to undermine the global economy. One of our forum's most central debates was how a trend towards deglobalization could affect inflation. One side sees tariffs and supply chain disruptions as a supply shock that could prove inflationary, both in the short run and longer term. They see the possibility for an unfavorable mix of slowing growth and rising inflation pressures over time as prices rise and productivity falls. Another camp believes protectionism could actually be disinflationary due to the gradual realignment of supply chains and manufacturing capacity. On top of that, technological innovation could also keep a lid on inflationary pressures. Think about how companies like Uber have made the ride-sharing market more competitive and caused lower prices among other ride-sharing companies and taxis. Jean Boivin, head of BII, spoke to Rick Reeder. One thing we've discussed, which I think to me is a big deal, not only for fixed income, but for the other asset class, is uh, what's going to happen to inflation. One place where uh, we've been debating is what the trade context is doing to that. And does it change 
the supply chain picture? Does it lead to bigger adjustment? And at the same time, we're worried about potentially inflation being too low, right? So we have like now a pretty interesting divergence. So I, and I've been felt for a long time that it's hard to create that inflation is in a structural downshift. And I believe that because of you look historically, particularly when you have trade wars, you think about what happens when you have trade wars, you can have a near-term shock to inflation, you can have a bit more inflation. But what happens is you increase productive capacity. You saw it in agriculture, you certainly saw it in energy. You think about the development of shale and deep water and oil sands, you create productive capacity. So I think, and the other thing you do with tariffs particularly, is you'll dull aggregate demand, you'll dull growth. And so, you know, today I can see a little bit more inflation. Certainly wages are accelerated. We think inflation will pick up a bit from where it is today, which has been pretty depressed. But I think there's some headwinds to long-term structural inflation. We talk about it a lot, that entrepreneurialism, innovation today, I've never seen anything like this in all my years of investing or even studying history, that that entrepreneurialism and innovation is literally targeted right at price. It's part targeted right at margin. And where the new companies develop, it's literally where there's margin and price today. So you've got a big headwind. I'm not saying you can't create a bit more inflation, but there's something structural in commerce that is unique to anything I've ever seen in studying economies for years. Like Rick said, we appear to be breaching new territory here. But there's a lot to be optimistic about. We do think the cycle and risk assets like stocks have room to keep running forward. There's more space to take risk. We just prefer to do so with some resilience built in. Jean sat down with some of our portfolio managers to get a sense of how they're thinking about investing at this point in the year. First, we turn back to Rick for his views on the Fed and the path forward for fixed income. I think the big deal is this shift the Fed made back in January. For investing, it's the biggest thing that we think about. You've got a Fed now that is not hiking rates, that is not tightening against you. And so when you think about managing risk, you think about your portfolio and risk assets, you have a central bank that'll be sensitive to what happens to growth and inflation. It's a very big deal. What's tricky for me as we were debating is that I think it's a bit different. It's not only about the data anymore, but it's about what's happening with tensions and trade and tariffs. And the tricky thing is that it's not clear that easing will be the solution for Mm. any of these now predicaments we're dealing with. For now, the Fed has pivoted to an easing stance, and central banks around the world are following suit. Yields on government bonds have plummeted, but we still like them as a way to buffer portfolios against market swings. There are sources of resilience and quality in the stock market, too. Tony Despirito, head of U.S. Active Equity, shared with Jean why he's still optimistic about certain stocks. Q4 last year has been a difficult quarter. What lessons have you drawn from that and how does it affect your outlook for the next six to nine months? Well, one of the lessons is that markets are always more volatile than underlying economic reality, right? So the market's going to predict more recessions than we actually have. And I think that's what happened. Many more. Um, Many more. And I think also you see policy responses when there are growth weaknesses, right? We saw Fed become more dovish, for example. And I think that's to be expected. You know, we are getting later in the economic cycle, and cycles don't die of old age, but there's less pent-up potential. And as you get later in the cycle, I think volatility picks up. It's natural. And so that's something that we need to keep an eye on going forward. The other is I think the market's giving us a free opportunity with respect to balance sheets. The market is not distinguishing much between companies with really strong balance sheets and companies with weak Mm -hmm. balance sheets. I view that as a free option to upgrade the portfolio towards stronger balance sheets. Now's a great time for that. So how much of your constructive view and evaluation, sorry, you just said, depends on what's going to happen with the Fed? And, you know, there's a lot of cut being priced in right now by the market. How important is that to your Well, I don't think it's about the Fed. I think it's about long rates. 
right? And the market yeah. has adjusted regardless of the Fed. Mm-hmm. So I think in terms of the rate scenario, we're seeing that in the long bond already. And one of the things that we're looking for in the U.S. is kind of high-quality, stable companies that haven't yet gotten bid up like bond proxies. And we're seeing a couple of industries like that, like insurance brokers, mm-hmm. pipeline companies in the U.S. are examples of that steady cash flow yet not bid up in stock price. That means you should pay up for growth and you should pay up for high-quality bond proxy-like companies. And so I think that is important. On the margin side, uh, yeah, I do worry a little bit that we're late cycle. And therefore, maybe there's some risk to margins, whether that's wages. You know, we've had rising wages. Now that's come off a bit. The global trade that we've talked about, right, the supply chains, you know, that could mean that costs go up and margins go down for companies. So that's one of the things I'm worried about. So we're not necessarily at the peak of stock market potential, but we do see reasons to be cautious going forward. Many topics were in debate as we work through our views for the remainder of the year. So where did we net out? Global growth is slowing, and the pivot of global central banks to easy policy has bought investors time to make their portfolios more resilient. Geopolitical tensions, from the U.S.-China relationship to an America-first policy, might wind back decades of globalization. And it's critical we understand what this deglobalized world might look like, and what it might mean for inflation in central banks against what has been a long-standing backdrop of disinflationary forces. For the full readout of these discussions, head to BlackRock.com to read our complete global mid-year investment outlook. Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Bid. We'll see you next time. This material is for informational purposes and is prepared by BlackRock, is not intended to be relied upon as a forecast, research, or investment advice and is not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. The opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and are subject to change. The information and opinions contained in this material are derived from proprietary and non-proprietary sources deemed by BlackRock to be reliable and are not guaranteed as to accuracy or completeness. This material may contain forward-looking information that is not purely historical in nature. There is no guarantee that any forecast made will come to pass. Reliance upon information in this material is at the sole discretion of the listener. Past performance is not indicative of current or future results. This information provided is neither tax nor legal advice, and investors should consult with their own advisors before making investment decisions. Investment involves risk, including possible loss of principal. This material is not an offer to sell or an invitation to apply for any particular product or service. In the U.S., this material is intended for public distribution. In Singapore, this is issued by BlackRock Singapore Limited, co-registration number 2000-10143N. In Hong Kong, this material is issued by BlackRock Asset Management North Asia Limited and has not been reviewed by the Securities and Futures Commission of Hong Kong. In Australia, issued by BlackRock Investment Management Australia Limited ABN 13006, 165-975-AFSL-230523-BIMAL. BIMAL. The material provides general information only and does not take into account your individual objectives, financial situation, needs, or circumstances. In Latin America, this material is for educational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice nor an offer or solicitation to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any shares of any fund. No securities regulators in Latin America have confirmed the accuracy of any information contained herein. 
The provision of investment management and investment advisory services is a regulated activity in Mexico, thus is subject to strict rules. For more information on the investment advisory services offered by BlackRock Mexico, please refer to the Investment Services Guide, available at blackrock.com mx. Copyright 2019, BlackRock, Inc. All rights reserved. BlackRock is a registered trademark of BlackRock, Inc. All other trademarks are those of their respective owners.